Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. We began study in this Old Testament prophetic book, and we find ourselves in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 12. It was the great theologian J.I. Packer who wrote many years ago, and I quote, "...of the evils that infect God's world." I'm speaking about moral and spiritual perversity, waste of good, and the physical disorders and disruptions of a spoiled cosmos. It can summarily be said, Packer said, first of all, that God permits evil. Secondly, that God punishes evil with more evil. Third, God brings good out of evil. Fourth, God uses evil to test and discipline those that He loves. And fifth, one day, God will redeem His people from the power and the presence of evil altogether. Indeed, what Packer said so many years ago is very true from a scriptural standpoint. It is true this morning because God is sovereign that He does indeed permit evil. For generations, God has allowed nations to go their own way. For generations, God has allowed individuals to continue in their sin without being stopped. Not only that, but Packer is also right when he affirms that God punishes evil with more evil. Just think about Israel for a moment. Throughout their history, she refused to submit to God out of a stubborn mindset and a stiff-necked people. And so what does God do? Psalm 81 tells us that God gave them over to their own counsel. And it's not just Israel, for we read in Romans chapter 1 that the world itself has seen fit not to acknowledge God. And so what has God done? He has given over cultures and societies to debased minds that are filled with all manner and forms of unrighteousness and evil and wickedness. God said, in effect, you want evil, I'll give you evil, I'll give you more evil, and I will allow you to suffer the consequences of your evil. But it's also true, as Packer notes, that God brings good out of evil. And here we can say that with a smile on our faces as we remember Old Testament stories such as the one of Joseph whose brothers sold him into slavery and yet he told his brothers at the end of the day, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Or just think about the Gospel. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified by the hands of godless men. And yet we read in the book of Acts that it was God who delivered Him up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That yes, we can confirm this morning the presence of evil and we can also confirm that God is powerful enough to bring good out of evil. He did it even through the punishment and the crucifixion of His only begotten Son. And Packer is also right when he says that God uses evil to test and discipline those that He loves. And go back to the life of our Lord who was tested for 40 days by Satan in the wilderness. And then your mind can go to the book of Hebrews and we learn there that God is a Father who loves His children and therefore disciplines them 
through suffering and through trials. Oh, Packer is right. God permits evil. God punishes evil with evil. God brings good out of evil. God even uses evil to test and discipline those He loves. And yes, he is also right that someday God will do away with the very presence and power of evil. The book of Revelation tells us that nothing unclean will enter heaven. It is only those whose robes have been washed with the blood of the Lamb who will enter the gates of heaven, whereas outside of the gates will remain, as the book of Revelation says, dogs and the sexually immoral and idolaters and everyone else who loves and practices falsehood. As God's people, we long for that day to be delivered from a world of evil, to be delivered from the presence of evil. And so every Lord's Day that we are together, we pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses even as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The book of Habakkuk is a book about the presence of evil. It is also a book that has a series of complaints by a prophet of God, a man of God, who is complaining to God about the circumstances of his time, circumstances that were filled with all sorts of evil. We began looking last week at the first series of complaints in verses 2-4, through where Habakkuk cries out, O Lord, how long? And this morning we're going to begin looking in verses 12 and 13, and we're going to see another set of complaints by the prophet. And so you ask yourself the question, is it right, is it reverent, is it okay to complain to God? Well, that depends on what you mean by complain. We need to take note of the fact that Habakkuk is not complaining about God. Rather, Habakkuk is complaining to God. And there is a difference between complaining about God and complaining to God. Complaining about God sounds more like, how could God do this to me? How could God allow such and such to happen to me. That's complaining about God. Habakkuk does not complain about God. He takes his problems directly to God. He complains to God and he says, God, why? Why do you do what you do? God, why are you allowing what you are allowing? This is a reverent sort of complaining as we referred to it last week. Now, why is Habakkuk complaining? What's going on in his day? Well, we saw last week that Habakkuk is complaining because, as he says in verses 2-4, through there is violence and there is iniquity and there is injustice and there is the general oppression of the righteous by the unrighteous. He's lamenting the fact that the leaders of Israel are corrupt through and through. Most of the prophets are false prophets and most of the people are wicked sons of God who are not obeying the law of God. And Habakkuk is lamenting and complaining to God, Oh Lord, how long will you allow this to happen before you punish it? And God responds, as we saw last week in verses 5-11, through with a very strange answer. God responded by telling Habakkuk that He was going to send the evil Babylonians to invade Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, and take prisoners back to Babylon. Now understand, this is not what the prophet nor the people 
that the prophet represented expected by God. I suppose that as Habakkuk prays to God and complains to God, he assumes that God's going to do one of two things, but certainly not the third thing, which is what God is actually doing. Habakkuk probably thinks, well, maybe God's going to sweep in and just take out the unrighteous. Just open the earth up and let the earth swallow them up and take them right into Hades. Or perhaps Habakkuk thinks that God will use him as a prophet to preach the message of salvation of a faithful covenantal God who loves his children, who delivered his children, and called the nation back to repentance, and you'll have some sort of national revival such as like that that took place under Josiah, who was the king right before wicked Jehoiakim, who is now reigning now. But never in a million years did Habakkuk or the people of God think that God would come to destroy his people through the wicked Babylonians. And so now this raises a whole other set of questions on Habakkuk's part. He began with a complaint, O Lord, how long are you going to allow your wicked people, Judah, to go in their sin without punishing them? And now it's complicated things by God's answer. And now he's asking God, how can you send the Babylonians to destroy us? Again, we have trouble understanding and recognizing the plight that Habakkuk and the people of God found themselves in. So let me just sort of give this in sort of modern day terminology. This would be like the church in the 1940s in the United States of America praying for a national revival and Nazi Germany coming in and invading Washington, D.C. and taking over the government. That that's the answer to prayer that God gives to judge a nation. Or maybe it's the communists of the 1960s sending ballistic missiles over, taking out every major city in the United States and Christians are praying for a national revival and that's what God sends. Or in our own day, Russia or China invading the United States, taking over the West and that's God's answer to the prayers of God's people that why are you putting up with all this wickedness? That's the same sort of thing that Habakkuk is going through and so he is perplexed. And this morning, it's not just global issues that we don't understand what God is doing around us globally, but it's also personal issues. We see God doing what He does and we begin to question or lament what He's doing, not because we lack faith, but because our faith is deep. As I mentioned last week, we know that God is all good. We know that God is all powerful. And so that begs the question, why then does He allow so much evil around us? And so we find ourselves in the same position as Habakkuk. What do we do when we find ourselves questioning God as to why He allows something into our lives? God, why did my mother have to die so young? God, why does that little child suffer so much? God, why did You make me the way that You made me? God, why have You put me where You have? Will my grief and my suffering ever end? And I want you to understand this morning that God is not obligated to answer those questions, but sometimes in an act of grace, He will answer those questions. And the Scriptures tell us, I think in our passage this morning, that there is a right way to question God. There, of course, is a wrong way to question God. Think with me for a moment about an unbelieving philosophy teacher at a university who writes a syllogism on the board for his students. A syllogism is a form of reasoning which draws a conclusion based on a set of propositions. And so the philosophy teacher writes on the board Proposition 1, God, if He's even there, 
is supposedly a good God. Proposition number two, God, this God, is all-powerful. Proposition three, there's evil in the world, therefore the conclusion, there is no God. God, if He's supposedly there, is good, and He's all-powerful, and there's evil in the world, there can't be a God. That's an unbelieving sort of deduction. And unbelievers, like the philosophy teacher who wrote the syllogism, question God without faith. But as believers this morning, we are questioning God with our faith. And our syllogism looks more like this. Proposition number one, God is good. Proposition number two, God has all power. Proposition number three, there's evil in the world. Conclusion, God must have a holy purpose in it. We question God from the depth of our faith. And here in this passage, Habakkuk is wrestling with that conclusion. God, you must have a purpose in all of this, but I want to understand this purpose. And we too want to understand what God is doing. We want to understand His purpose for the difficulties and the trials that we experience in life. So notice with me the second series of complaints beginning in verse 12. Habakkuk approaches God. And he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with His net. He gathers them in His dragnet, so He rejoices and is glad. Therefore, He sacrifices to His net and makes offerings to His dragnet. For by them He lives in luxury and His food is rich. Is He then to keep on emptying His net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what He will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is the second series of complaints that Habakkuk offers up to God. And in these verses, I believe that we see the right way to question God, the right way to complain before God. And I think studying these verses is important for us for several reasons. First of all, everyone here wonders at some point in their lives why God is doing whatever it is that He's doing. It may be a global thing, or a national thing, or an ecclesiastical thing, or a personal thing. But at some point, and maybe even this morning, you find yourself in the midst of wondering what God is up to. You need to know how to rightly question God and pour your complaints out before Him. There's a second reason why this is important, and that is because there is a wrong way, as I mentioned earlier, there is a wrong way to wonder about why God is doing what He's doing. In other words, there is a wrong way to complain and to question God. And we want to know the right way. And then thirdly, this passage is important because Habakkuk's method of complaining actually results, listen to this, in the strengthening of his faith. And therein lies the grace and the blessing of this passage that even in the midst of our complaining and our questioning of God, when we come out the other end of that complaining and questioning, we find that our faith as true believers is not weakened, but is actually strengthened. We learn here that God always wins the argument with the Christian who complains and questions God. 
And so what we find in these verses are really three steps that Habakkuk takes. And I think these three steps of complaining to God should mark every Christian's attempt to complain or to question God. You see, the question this morning, as I mentioned last week, is not whether it's right or wrong to question God. The issue is, how do we come before Him? How do we question Him? And I think these three steps that we see in these verses are the right way to approach God. First, we see in verses 12-13 through that Habakkuk worships God by confession. Second, he wrestles God through complaining in verses 14 through 17. And third, he waits on God with confidence, chapter 2 and verse 1. First, he worships God by confession. Second, he wrestles God through complaining. And third, he waits on God with confidence. And these three steps should mark the way that you and I question and offer our complaints and laments and prayers before God when we don't understand why He's doing what He's doing in our world. So notice with me, first of all, in verses 12 and 13, the first step that Habakkuk takes in his complaint against God is that he begins by worshiping God by confession. He worships God by confession. Now, I'm using the word confession not in the sense of confessing sin, but the practice of confessing truth. The essence of true worship is the confession of true truth. So this morning, as you question God, and you question maybe perhaps what God is doing in your life, what you need to understand is that where you need to run is to the places and to the things you know to be true about your God. There are many things about God you don't know. There are many mysteries about God. But when you complain before God and when you begin to question God, you don't begin with the things you don't know. You begin with the things you know deep down. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does. You may not understand something, what God has allowed, what He's doing in your life, what He appears that He's going to permit. So what do you do? You run to understand by running to the things you know to be true. You confess truth. That's what Habakkuk does here. First of all, he confirms that God is a God of promises. Notice in verse 12 how he approaches God. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? This is worship. And he's approaching God reverently. And he begins by affirming what he knows to be true about the eternal nature of God. He asks a question, but it's not a question he doesn't know the answer to. It's a rhetorical question. And we do this all the time, don't we, in catechisms? We ask the same questions over and over and over again, the answers to which we already know and have already heard, but we ask the same questions to hear the same answers so that our faith is strengthened. We ask the questions because we already know the answers and we need reminded of those things, and that's exactly what Habakkuk does here. And what is he reminding himself of? He's reminding himself, are you not everlasting? Of course you're everlasting. You're eternal, God. He's affirming the fact that God has been in the past and God will be in the future, that God is sovereign. He is the God of history. And he's a God of promises. Notice how he addresses God by his covenant name. He says, O Lord. He did that back in, in verse 2. O Lord, how long? He does it here. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. That title, Lord, is the name Yahweh. 
It's the covenant name of God. The great I Am. The self-sufficient, omnipotent God. The One who is eternally faithful to His people. And notice He calls Him My Holy One. See, Habakkuk knows as he represents God's people that they belong to God and God belongs to them in a covenant where promises have been made that will be kept because God is a faithful God and because, as he says here, God is my Holy One. He does whatever He does, free from sin. He is faithful to His promises. And so notice what happens. He confirms in verse 12, we shall not die. You see what he's doing? He's rehearsing the unchangeable nature of God. He's affirming that God is faithful to His promises. You see, he's beginning to realize and understand the bigger picture here. Yes, God is going to send the Babylonians to judge Judah. But because God is a God who is faithful to His covenant promises, He is going to preserve a righteous remnant even though they'll be taken away into Babylonian exile. This is not a matter of death. It's a matter of discipline. And so he understands this is God's chastisement. He's not going to obliterate us. He's not going to destroy us. For He is the covenantal Lord. He is Yahweh. He is a God of promise. And you understand as he confesses this truth, he's confessing truth that he knows about God because there are things he doesn't know about God. And as he confesses the things that he knows about God, it brings clarity to the things that he doesn't know about God. And he's able to deduce that God surely won't do that because he's a faithful God. And this is the same way it works with us, beloved. We come on a Lord's Day morning to worship God, and here we have confessed truth together through song, through catechism, through the reading of Scripture, through the preaching of the Word of God. And what happens? Well, I hope what happens is that any doubts that you have had this past week about the goodness of God, or the power of God, or the holiness of God, begin to dissipate as your faith is strengthened as you go through the process of confirming what you know to be true by confession. You remind yourself of the goodness of God, the faithfulness to God. And so here is Habakkuk complaining to God by confessing what he knows to be true, that God is a God of promises. But he doesn't end there. He also affirms that God is a God of providence. Notice the second half of verse 12. He's not only a God of promise, but also a God of providence. He continues, O Lord, You have ordained them, that is the Babylonians, as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You see, as he thinks about this and complains, he's certain that Babylon has been appointed only as chastisement for Israel's sins, not to completely obliterate them off the map. And so he refers to God as someone who is reliable. He is Habakkuk's rock. He is a God of providence that can't be shaken, that can't be moved by the times and the tumults and the trials and the wars and the famines and the things of this world, not even by the mighty Babylonians. He's a sovereign God. God is not a literal rock, but metaphorically, He is a rock to illustrate the firm foundation of support on which the prophet and the people's faith will rest. God is the ground of their confidence who sovereignly reigns and remains true to his promises. He's a rock that is unshakable. Habakkuk can trust God because he's the sovereign rock of history. And listen, friends, there's no better place to be than to place your faith upon the rock, the one who controls your very breath that comes out of your body this morning. 
He's a rock. When I was a little boy growing up in West Virginia, we spent much of our time in the woods. And I remember in particular there was a period in my life where there was a time of discovery and a time of adventure. And so my brother and I would explore the woods and we would find various things. And we found a treasure on one day that we could not stop going back to. And so we began to tell our friends about this. And to get to this treasure was a somewhat treacherous journey. And so we wouldn't give our friends a lot of information. We would simply call them on the phone and tell them to meet us in the middle of the woods on the well-worn path to which they would agree to come. We would walk along the path until it came to its end, at which point we would take an immediate right and we would begin to go through brush, thickets, thorns, and all manner of other things that come as the result of the fall. And we would come to this opening field that stretched very far, the length of a football field. And when you got to the edge of the field, you had to reach the other side into the woods without being shot by the old man who lived in the trailer who didn't like children trespassing on his property. But once you got past that point, past the old man with a shotgun, you were almost to the treasure and you would come into the woods and you would walk a little bit more and as you listened, you would hear water rushing below. And you came to a ravine, a very steep and high ravine, And you would slide down this ravine holding onto roots and whatever else you could hold onto to keep from killing yourselves. And when you came to the bottom, you came to a beautiful creek that flowed with waterfall after waterfall after waterfall. So my brother and I would step into this creek and my friends thought we were crazy until we convinced them that if they followed our steps, we had been there before. If they followed our steps and they placed their feet on the rocks that were sturdy, on the rocks that had held our weight before and that will surely hold our weight this time, they would get safely through the troubled waters. The same thing is true from a spiritual standpoint. There is troubling water below us, and the only thing that will get us through the journey of life is to keep our faith rested upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we read in the New Testament, we read that this title rock is not merely a title for Yahweh. It is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. For Jesus said in Matthew 7, to build your house on the rock, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Habakkuk prays to God, he realizes that God is going to preserve a righteous remnant. And it is this Christ who's... Lineage reaches back through the righteous remnant that was preserved. It is that Christ upon which we rest our faith. The rock. The rock of His Word. And friends, that's what we must come to when we question what God is doing in our lives. We don't run to try to answer the things we can't answer. We run to the truths that we already know. And Habakkuk says... That God is His rock. He's making a confession of truth. That God is a God of promise. 
God is a God of providence. Notice third, God is a God of purity. Habakkuk confirms in verse 13. He continues confessing what he knows to be true by rhetorically asking, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk is asking, how can a holy God who hates sin permit evil to continue going without it being punished? God, you're too pure to look at evil and wrong. Then why are you witnessing, why are you ordaining the Babylonians to come and invade the people of Judah? You see, Habakkuk seems to be concerned, and I think this is an important point to listen to, that if God allows the Babylonians to come, it will result in greater damage to God's holy character. Habakkuk is thinking in his mind, God, you have allowed Judah, your people, to go on with wickedness generation after generation. What do the nations think about your holy character? How does this match up to your purity and to your holiness? And now he's beginning to question, now not only are you going to let your people continue in wickedness without sending a national revival, but now you're going to send the evil Babylonians to come and commit evil acts on them. Why not just send a revival? Why not just punish the unrighteous? Why send the evil Babylonians? You see, Habakkuk is defending God's character. He knows that he's a God of promise. He knows he's a God of providence. He knows he's a God of purity. And so he's questioning, God, why don't you choose another method? Things are beginning to be complicated. By the way, in verse 13, that term pure is an adjective that describes God's nature as being ethically pure. Habakkuk is reasoning theologically and biblically here. How can God stand by, ordain, allow, remain silent, as verse 13 says, while the unethical Babylonians commit such atrocities on His people, the children of Judah? And He even says in verse 13, Yeah, Lord, we're wicked, but you're going to allow the more wicked to swallow up the man more righteous? Sure, Judah's wicked, but Babylon is even more wicked. And you're just going to watch as we're swallowed up. I mean, Habakkuk is really complaining here. This is now becoming almost accusatory that God is not only tolerating the wicked Babylonians, but He's going to use them. And this is a moment of panic for him. He's panicking because he's worried about God's glory. And he wants to defend it. Listen, don't ever try to defend God's glory. Because if Habakkuk was truly thinking purely biblically here, he would remember the prophet Isaiah. And he would remember that the prophet Isaiah prophesied that God would use the Assyrians, a very wicked people, as his rod of chastisement on Israel. This didn't conflict with God's glory. It actually gave more strength to His glory because it showed that God is even sovereign over evil and He can even use evil people to accomplish His purposes. And so Isaiah prophesied, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is wrath. I will send them, God says, against a godless nation. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage, to take spoils, to plunder, to trample them down like clay in the streets. Habakkuk, a prophet of God who knew the Word of God, should have remembered that passage. 
And he should have remembered how God had worked in the past to use Assyria as a rod of God's anger. Later on in this book, God will reveal to Habakkuk that God is going to raise up another man who is wicked, a man by the name of Cyrus, the king of the Persians, who God will now use to send those in Babylonian exile back to Jerusalem. You see, God doesn't change. And the way that He works does not change. And I think it is a simple reminder to us that God is for His people, but God is also against sin. He's against the sin of His own people. And when God's people have acted unfaithfully to His covenant, God will chastise and discipline them. Listen, God holds all sinners accountable for their sin, even His own children, and we might say especially His own children. Friday night I had a reoccurring dream. It always goes back to sports and it always goes back to soccer. And I I had a dream that I was playing for the U.S. national soccer team. One of my friends was in that dream and he was on the team with me, a friend from college. A very real dream. It was one of those dreams where you wake up and you're disappointed because you realize it was just a dream. But this friend I haven't spoken to in like nine years. And so the first thing that I did when I woke up is I did something that I've done before. I went on the internet and I searched for him. I tried to find him. I wanted to contact him. And I couldn't find him. Couldn't find him on Facebook. Couldn't find him anywhere. And then I found his obituary. Had no idea that he died nine years ago at the age of 24. And then I began to reflect on several other friends, two in particular, a childhood friend who was my best friend growing up who died at the age of 22 by an accident. And then another friend, a running partner of mine, who died by an accident falling from a cliff on his face at the age of 19. And whether it is right or wrong to think this, I immediately thought of my friend. I knew he was a believer. But if I'm being honest, I will admit that in the case of all three of those friends, they were not the most godly Christians. We know from the Word of God We know that Paul says in the book of Corinthians that those that partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And I don't want to dabble in the area of speculation. But I know this, God is a merciful and gracious God. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He is faithful, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. But let us not forget the rest of Exodus 34, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generations. God will chasten His own children. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes to the point of death. And the mere fact that we don't like talking about that shows our own view of sin being very light. And what Habakkuk needs to come 
to grips with is the fact that God is a holy God. God does not owe anyone in this room another breath to breathe. And often we're just like Habakkuk. We affirm the things that we want to affirm about God and sometimes somehow forget the things that we don't want to affirm that we know are true. And so we come to a crisis or a period of suffering in our life and we pray, oh God, I know you can deliver me from this. Oh God, I know that you can see me through this. And yet we fail to recognize that perhaps that suffering is exactly what God has ordained for us to go through. And God has no intention of delivering us, but what He does intend to do is show us His grace and show us His love and give us strength and strengthen our faith as we go through that. How do we come to believe that God is still good? How do we come to believe God is still holy and still righteous and still sovereign in the midst of questioning all the things that go on in our lives and in the world? It's by worshiping Him through confession. Confessing what we know to be true. Reminding ourselves that He's holy and righteous and good and faithful to His promises. That is why every Lord's Day we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. God, no matter what happened this past week, God, no matter what's going to happen this coming week, You are hallowed. You are holy. You are pure. You are worthy of worship. That's what Habakkuk's doing. This is a reverent and a right way to complain to God. And so the first step in rightly questioning God is to worship God by confession. Habakkuk affirms the things he knows about God to provide clarity to the mysteries of God. But not only does he worship God by confession, notice secondly with me, he wrestles with God through complaining in verses 14 through 17. And this is the second step. There is a right way to wrestle with God. You know, Habakkuk's name literally means embrace. And many commentators believe that that, uh, that means that Habakkuk lived up to his name of embracing God by faith. Other commentators will point out the fact. I don't think I've mentioned this as of yet. But nevertheless, that, 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 that word embrace also signifies the fact that Habakkuk was embracing God in terms of wrestling with Him. And I think in verses 14 through 17, Habakkuk certainly is wrestling with God with his words. And what he does in these verses, it won't take long to go through them because it's really just an extended metaphor. All he's doing in summary is he's using a metaphor of fishing to illustrate the godless nature of the Babylonians. He likens them to fishermen who use their skill and who use their strength to to conquer nations. And of course, Babylonia was located on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and to its south was the Persian Gulf. Interestingly enough, archaeologists have discovered parts of city walls in this area portraying uh, victorious rulers carrying away captives in fishnets. And so Habakkuk doesn't just think of this out of the blue. He's he's a man of his times, and, and everyone would view the Babylonians as wicked fishermen. And he's wrestling with God. He's pouring out his complaint against God. God, don't you see what they are and what they're doing? Notice verse 14. He says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He's referring to the people of the world as the fish of the sea who are vulnerable as if they don't have a ruler. I mean, this is strong language of of doubting God's sovereignty. And he goes on to say in verse 15, he, speaking of, of... Babylon 
brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. The Babylonians were like fishermen. Now it takes skill and it takes strength to to fish with a net. I, I don't have the strength nor the skill to do it. But but it takes skill, it takes strength, and they were using all of that for their own good, to serve themselves. And they were rejoicing and they were glad in it. Their dominance and subjugating peoples. Habakkuk sees the wickedness in this. And notice he returns to a theme in verse 16, 16 a theme that he mentioned back in verse 11, when he, when he says they sweep by like the wind and they go on guilty men whose own might is their God. And we mentioned last week that these men were godless. They worshiped their own strength. And here in verse 16, Habakkuk says, Therefore he sacrifices to his net and he makes offerings to his dragnet. In other words, they worshiped their success as evil people. They worshiped their nets that caught up the people and plundered their goods and possessions, supplying them with the finest of things. For his part, Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt and expanded the capital city, surpassing in splendor every other city of its time in the ancient world. They were a successful nation, but they did it by wicked means, by plundering people. And he says in verse 16, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. God, can't you see the evil of Babylon? How could you use them? Why use them of of all people? There's a museum in Washington, D.C., the Holocaust Museum. I've never been. And I spoke with some people recently about this museum. And my first question was, that has to be a, a somber place to go. I mean, here you've got pictures and artifacts of the Jewish people who were plundered by the Nazis. They were told that their luggages were being loaded on a train. Instead, it was thrown into a pile. And all their gold and all their jewelry and all their their life savings were plundered by the Nazis. And then they were killed. You think of the wickedness of that. And that's really what you need to think of when you think of Habakkuk and what he's thinking about with the Babylonians. These were evil people. And Habakkuk is lamenting and complaining before God, God, if you're just, why would you allow this? And so notice in verse 17, he says, this is sort of a final question, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This is like uh, verse 2, O Lord, how long? How long are you going to allow justice to not occur? How long are you going to allow the wicked to rejoice and to go on in their evil doings without being punished, dominating. And you're just standing by watching your children being abused. One of the first pastoral visits that I ever made was to a man who had spent some time in prison. And I remember driving to to his house, and I remember sitting in his living room. He had become a believer And so I asked him to tell me about his past, to to give me his testimony. And as we sat in his living room, and as he shared with me what he had done, horror, absolute and sheer horror, filled my heart and my mind. Not because this man was guilty of physically laying his hands on anyone. 
Not because this man had directly taken part in a wicked crime of the abuse of a child, but because right in the living room I was sitting in, he stood by and watched someone else commit a crime. And in our criminal system, and in our country, you don't have to directly commit a crime to be seen as guilty when you remain silent and you witness something and don't intervene and don't stop it and don't step in. Habakkuk is viewing God that way. God, why are you allowing your children to be abused and you're doing nothing? You see, Habakkuk has made very good progress in affirming what he knows to be true about God in the midst of a time when he didn't know what God was doing. He affirmed his goodness, his faithfulness, his providence, his holiness, his righteousness, but now he's at a crossroads. He has wrestled with God through his complaints. He just can't reconcile while God would do what he's doing. And friends, he's in a very dangerous place. It's not wrong to complain to God. But if we complain to God and that's where we stop, that is a dangerous place to be. Because complaining can end in a lack of trust in God's goodness. It can turn sour. And so is it right to wrestle with God? Yes. Is it right to question God? Yes. But there's a third step. Habakkuk is wrestling with God, trying to figure out how just God can be and allowing this more wicked nation to come in and punish Judah. Notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He began by worshiping God by confession. He continued by wrestling with God through complaint. But now he's going to wait on God with confidence. It doesn't end with the complaining. Notice, he takes his stand at the watch post. He's, he's stationing himself on the tower. And there, as he says here, he's going to look out to see what God will say to him, how God will answer his complaint. This is very instructive for us. Habakkuk is an honest man of God. Step one, he was being honest about God. He affirmed through confession, all the things that he knew to be true about God. He was honest about God. In the second step, he was honest with God. He wrestled with God. He poured his complaints before God. But in this third step, he's moving from being honest about God and being honest with God to being honest to God. Honest in the sense of being faithful. He's going to wait for the answer and he's going to accept it by faith. He's laid out his complaint. He's laid it out before the Lord. He's going to leave it there. He's going to let God answer. He's going to let God be God. Listen, he's going to let God have the final word and he's not going to mention it again. He's not going to mention it again. A watchtower is an apt place to wait. Guards wait on a watchtower. They're posted there to keep watch in case the enemy approaches. And Habakkuk sees himself as sort of like a military police officer who is watching to see what enemies will come. He's watching. He's on a lookout to hear a word from the Lord and to provide a warning for the people of God. Was he literally on a watchtower? I don't know. At least figuratively, we know that even the prophet Ezekiel was referred to as a watchman in Ezekiel 3.17 
God told the prophet, Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. It could be literal that he was on the watchtower. It could just be figurative that he's watching and waiting on God in seclusion, in loneliness, in silence. And that's exactly what we need to do when we bring our complaints before God. Listen, He's already spoken. He's affirmed what He knows to be true about God. He's wrestled with God through the perplexing difficulties of what God has allowed, what God has ordained, what God is doing. And now He leaves it before God and He waits for an answer. Of course, waiting requires faith. And Habakkuk has that. He may not have all the answers, but he has faith. And beloved, I want to tell you this morning, you may have a lot of questions. You may have doubts this morning. Your soul may be vexed. But none of that essentially is the most central issue. The most central issue is, do you still have faith? Do you have faith when things don't look good that God is still a good God? Do you have faith that God will answer your prayers in the best way as you wait on Him? Do you trust Him even when you don't understand Him? You see, Habakkuk has come to that place. He has been honest to God. And what do we do when we question God and we don't know what it is that He is doing? We, we leave it at His feet. We trust in the Lord with all of our heart and we lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways we acknowledge Him and He will direct our paths. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There is a right way to question God. But it begins by worshiping God by confession. Then wrestling God through complaining. But it must always end by waiting on God confidently. Leaving it in His hands. Allowing Him to do whatever It is that He needs to do. Now as we bring all of this to a conclusion before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to walk through those three steps with you in summary fashion and really bring this to home, home to us in terms of of practical application. Step number one, we begin by worshiping God by confessing what we know to be true about Him. What does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't say be be quick to speak and slow to hear. It says be slow to, slow to speak and quick to hear. James says that, Ecclesiastes 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Our words have to be few when we complain before God. And what needs to mark our words are truths of confession. The way to see ourselves through the problem of not being able to reconcile the mysterious workings of God is to find strong footholds for our feet. We run to the absolute truths that will sustain us and hold us up above troubled waters. Every confession of truth is like lifting weights. You're building confidence as you confess the truths that you know to God. 
It's like spiritual exercises. In the mornings after I run, I go into our garage and I lay out a mat and I I do some more exercises and my boys come in and there's a little radio with a CD that has catechism questions on it and they plug it in and they play that. And I preach to them every morning. Physical exercise is good. Spiritual exercise is good. Physical exercise is good. Spiritual exercise is good. Incidentally, as I was working on my dissertation, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary Library and I pulled out the six volumes of of Puritan sermons. And I went through every single one of those volumes trying to find stuff that would help me on my dissertation. And I noticed that at the bottom of these sermons, on the cover is the title, Morning Exercises. The Puritans called the preaching of the Word, the worship of God's people on the Lord's Day, as exercises, morning exercises. Why? Because it's where we come to confess truth so that our faith is strengthened, so that we build perseverance and we build muscle, so that when we come to those times in our lives when we don't understand what God is doing, we lean upon the things that we know to be true about Him. And that protects us from all forms of evil. God, you are faithful. God, you are good. God, you are sovereign. God, you are holy. God, you are our strength in ages past, the hope for years to come, the shelter in the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Even as we sing this morning, some churches will add amen to the end of their hymns. Why do they do that? They do that to affirm the truth that they just sang. When we get to the end of Habakkuk, into chapter 3, that's what Habakkuk does. He writes a hymn to God, to amen God, to affirm His truth. We must worship God by confession. Second step, we wrestle God through complaining. Now what does this look like? Hear me out on this. We pour our hearts out to God. You're struggling with something this morning. You pour your heart out to God. You tell Him exactly what you think because you know He can handle it. God knows we are but dust. You tell Him the situation. You beg with Him. You plead with Him. You tell Him why He should act. You tell Him why He should do what you think He ought to do. And as you do that, something will happen you will begin to accept that God may do something unthinkable and that that will be okay. You begin to realize and accept that God can orchestrate His good through even bad. You begin to believe that His holiness, His purity is untainted with evil and however He chooses to answer your request is the right and good response by a holy and a just God. You wrestle with God and then you come to that third step You wait on God with confidence. You speak your mind to God and you leave it there. You leave it with God. You leave it to God to solve the issues and the problems that you're facing in life. That's always where our complaining needs to end. We leave it with God. We trust on Him. We wait with confidence on Him. You know, it is sad that many Christians don't like to speak about Jesus being an example to us. Now, I understand that, of course, He is not merely an example. He's a Savior. But He is an example. 
And Jesus had a problem. The problem was he was pure, sinless, and undefiled. And his Holy Father was ready for him to drink the cup of his own wrath. How can a sinless Savior be punished for sin he did not commit? And Jesus knew that at the hands of the Romans and at the hands of the Jews, it meant nothing for God, if He so chose, His Father in heaven could send 12 legions of angels to stop the whole thing. He had a problem in the garden. And what did He do with His problem? He took it to the Father. He said, Oh Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He basically adopted the method of Habakkuk, the prophet of embrace, and he embraced his holy father by faith because he knew, existing with the father from before all time, Jesus knew that His Holy Father would never command and demand of His only begotten Son something that was unholy or evil. He had faith that His Father would bring good out of the evil and treacherous act of crucifixion. You see, the very Gospel itself is a mystery. How and why would a holy God ordain evil men to punish His perfect Son? Why not just let sinners die and go to hell? And God would have been just to do that. So there's a mystery. Yes, partly because of His grace, partly because of His love, partly because of His glory. But why? At the end of the day, we don't deserve that grace. And what I want you to understand this morning is it is the grace of God that allows us to wait with confidence for God to answer our prayers and our questions according to His will. That He always does right. As Habakkuk affirms here in our text, He is the Holy One of Israel. And friends, you may question Him, and you may doubt, but may you never deny that He is the Holy One of Israel. And like Habakkuk, whose name means embrace, we must stand on the watchtower and confidently wait on God and embrace by faith whatever answer He may give to our deepest struggles and prayers in all of life. He is a good God. And He has manifested His goodness by sending His only begotten Son to be the payment for our sins, to redeem us, to make us holy like Himself, and to enjoy the rich fellowship unhindered by the presence of evil in the eternal heaven that He has prepared for all of His children. To God be the glory. Let us pray.